0: Monday matinees begin right here on the Mutual Audio Network.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance.
2: They're all dead, Doc. The bloodiest marshal I ever saw. It's just a wagon load of meat to him. That's enough, Brandon. It ain't hardly enough. I never seen such killing. Oh,
3: what happened, Mr. Dillon? It doesn't matter. They put up a fight and I had to take him.
2: Well, I'll tell him what happened. You're a lawman here. He hit himself in the grass and just waited for us to come out of that cabin. And then he yelled, so naturally we headed for cover. Who wouldn't? He just laid there and he cut loose of the shotgun. Tore up two of the boys that way. Then he stood up and he cut down Hank Smith with a six-shooter. How come you got out of it, Bran? I jumped back in the cabin, then I give up. We weren't putting up a fight. He spooked us yelling like that. Make any man jump. Oh, I suppose you're trying to say that you wouldn't have shot. We tried to shoot him. Who wouldn't? Any man's got a right to defend himself. Oh, well, I never heard of resisting arrest called self-defense. I never heard of no marshal shooting down everybody on the landscape.
3: Lock him up, Chester. Yeti, wild man, netto abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things,
4: and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, superstition, probably.
5: Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid.
2: Boy, that thing sure can't climb! Hold up! up. I think Hold can...
3: And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body, and I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone, finished.
0: Welcome to Reimagined Radio, a program about radio storytelling. I'm Jack Armstrong. With each episode, we combine dialogue, sound effects, and music to engage your listening imagination. This episode is no different, and here to tell you about it is John Barber, producer and host.
6: Thank you, Jack. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reimagined Radio. This episode pays tribute to William Conrad, one of the best radio actors we've ever heard. Conrad himself estimated that he voiced more than 7,500 roles in his radio career. Many of these were solid supporting roles, but Conrad literally defined two radio programs with his distinctive voice, Gunsmoke and Escape. Escape featured a wide range of stories, from science fiction to horror to murder mysteries, and was radio's leading anthology of adventure-drama from 1947 to 1954. The formula behind each episode of Escape was to place its actors in physical, psychological, or emotional situations from which there seemed to be no escape. The conflicts were carefully crafted and made for compelling, visceral drama that could be felt and internalized by listeners. Radio historians estimate that more than 250 episodes of Escape were produced. Conrad hosted and or starred in 90 of those episodes. He began each episode with an invitation to listeners.
3: Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you
6: escape. And then the episode was underway, with Conrad unfolding its tale of life and death situations and violent twists of fate. As radio historian John Dunning described the results, within five minutes, escape listeners were literally up to their earlobes in alligators. For our William Conrad tribute, we'll listen to an episode of Escape entitled The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, and first broadcast September 13, 1953. In this episode, Conrad leads an expedition up the slopes of Mount Everest, searching for the legendary Metokame, a mysterious half-man, half-ape creature reported by mountain-climbing parties. Conrad and his partners find themselves in a situation from which there seems no escape. Conrad's narration is letter perfect. Let's listen to The Abominable Snowman.
3: high on the frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. Our first bit of luck was when we hired our Sherpa guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nassang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said...
5: The Saibs have not come to climb Shomolongma?
3: Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two Saibs and myself are here for the reason I told you.
5: Meto Kangmi? That's right. The Saibs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away, sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk, and after a moment I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomalungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35.
3: You're sure it wasn't an ape?
5: I am sure. There is no ape in the Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs?
3: Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi, abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men? We didn't know, but we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful, the weather was good, and our spirits were high. From the llama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance.
7: Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Metokangmi?
3: Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research, that is, if these things are in any way human.
7: And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places. Dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time.
3: I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond?
7: You have my permission. Oh, thank I appreciate you. it. There is one point, however. I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it.
3: We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now may I ask you one more thing?
7: Of course, my son.
3: Do you believe in the existence of Metokangmi?
7: I myself have never seen them, but I know that they live here above the valley on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glaciers. Thank you. Do you have porters?
3: Our guide, Nasang, is hiring them now.
7: Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. <laughs>
3: The old man with great dignity bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nassang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news.
5: Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. The snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid.
3: <sighs> well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us, set up a base and start hunting. All right with you fellows. Sure, yeah, sure. Nasang, I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Uh, We'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. Uh, When do we start? Tomorrow.
4: Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, One thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, Superstition, probably.
5: Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid.
3: The weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea.
4: Uh, I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as stinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, uh, you
3: and Nasung, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots, hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what, Don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. We'd left the base at six that morning and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again, and with it a fine, powdery snow that blinded and choked us. Hey, I, I got to
4: take five.
3: All right. Here, move over here. It might cut some of the wind. Oh, Oh, that's better. We might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You
8: know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not.
3: This is good weather. Wait until the monsoons start. No, no, not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. We stayed in the half shelter of an overhang for ten minutes, and the wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Oh, Paul, I'm tired again. Uh, we'll just take it easy going down. Uh, you haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're... they're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. What's the just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow, and they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman.
6: This is Reimagined Radio with our tribute to William Conrad. By his own estimates, Conrad's unmistakable voice appeared in over 7,500 radio programs. We are listening to The Abominable Snowman, an episode of Escape. We'll hear the conclusion of this story in just a moment. This is John Barber, producer and host of Reimagined Radio. We partner with other radio programs, producers, and actors to bring you a variety of radio storytelling. One example is The Fusebox Show. Freeform but focused, appropriate for all age groups and audiences, Fusebox shares observations and reactions to events that both stir our imagination and boil our blood. Here's a sample.
2: How many golf balls must there be off the coast of Florida? Enough to bury Mar-a-Lago to its gold-plated turrets?
9: We live in the age of sloppy in plain sight. Mm,
10: Sloppy. Fuse.
6: Learn more at the Fusebox Show website, www.thefuseboxshow.com. This is Reimagined Radio with our tribute to William Conrad, whose deep, resonant voice was heard in numerous supporting roles, and in two series, his voice literally defined Gunsmoke and Escape. We are listening to Conrad narrate The Abominable Snowman, an episode of Escape first broadcast in 1953. Fresh footprints have just been found in the snow. They must have been made by Metakame, the mysterious half-man, half-ape creature reported to live on the slopes of Mount Everest. Let's continue listening to The Abominable Snowman.
3: began to follow the tracks. And for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat. Except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Oliver. It's
9: get- getting steeper. Boy, that thing sure can climb.
3: Hold up. Oliver.
9: I think they Hold can- it.
3: And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry. Then silence. The crevasse might have been 500 feet, or 5,000. Snow started to fall again, big flakes this time and wet. I stood up, and across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time.
4: Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to.
5: We should go back. It is an omen.
3: I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad
4: sense. Me Kong, we cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Uh, but there are only three of us. If we had a few more men...
3: I have... tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time, we'll get it.
4: There was no chance to get Alan out, huh? No. You think if we went back... We'll...
3: Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone.
4: Okay. Oh, okay. wish that wind had let up.
3: Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about... a body broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack, and we started up again this time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. And as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below, the valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No.
8: I... I have felt it too Sip. Something following uh, us? Yes. It is... Meitokongmi. How do you know? It can be nothing else. At this height, there is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank.
3: Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it.
4: You better watch your step.
3: It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassong hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just ascended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute, two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there, when I got there, Frank was lying on his back, and I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and he was dead. Dasang lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Son! What is it? What?
8: Metokang me it came from behind us before I could draw the gun. It killed Then it sprang at me. It is strong side with the strength of ten men. All right.
3: Alright, can you sit up?
8: My leg. It struck at me, my leg uh, broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone.
3: Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that. And we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Stop.
8: Leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer. Don't be a fool.
3: After a rest, you'll be able to go on.
8: Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me, No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on.
3: You've got to, Nassar. No,
8: no more. The
3: ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad.
8: No, no, let me stay.
3: Let me sleep. No, no, Let me... come on, Lassan. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Hey, Sam. You'll Sam be all right.
8: Behind you, Sam. Huh?
3: I turned, and for an instant I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching. Of medium height, it was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare, a semi human face, and it was not an ape. <laughs> The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I'd hit it. I knew I hit it. But me. that was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so.
8: Then it will be back. It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No. Get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. no song. I am very sorry, sir. Will you ask? the Lama to make a prayer for me. Sure.
3: Sure I will, Nassang, but...
8: Give my pay to my wife in their healing. I'm sorry, Saib. I die.
3: Nassang? Nassang? And the darkness came, and with its shadows in the snow, every hillock Mound became the thing, motionless waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded. And that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. (laughs) was a short incline but when I reached the bottom the gun was gone I'd lost it <laughs> I've got to find it I've got to find it <laughs> and I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away and at the same time above me at the top of the bank the thing it stood swaying a little looking down at me I moved slowly slowly inch my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, it doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun, and I pulled the trigger! And it lay there, strange and terrifying... ...its blood staining the snow. And it looked at me... ...looked at me... ...until the sound died away. It was dead, but the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound, and I ran, ran! and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the Wrong Book village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know about the abominable snowmen.
6: You have just listened to The Abominable Snowman, an episode of Escape narrated by William Conrad. Listening to his distinctive radio voice build and sustain the storytelling, we can imagine being there on the mountain, pursued by the legendary and dangerous creature. Conrad and his voice also defined the Western radio drama Gunsmoke. Heard on the Columbia Broadcasting System 1952 to 1961, Gunsmoke was one of the longest running radio dramas and arguably radio's greatest dramatic series. Gunsmoke began as a collaboration between producer Norman McDonnell and writer John Meston. They worked together on Escape and wanted to create a Western that would deal realistically with the hard realities of life in and around Dodge City, Kansas Territory, in the late 1800s. It was a violent place and someone had to stand in the way of the violence and the killing. I'm that man,
3: Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely.
6: Marshal Matt Dillon is hard as worn saddle leather, but violence must be met with violence, and this is destroying his soul. He is scared that every day could be his last. In Bloody Hands, first broadcast April 2nd, 1955, Conrad as Marshall Dillon speaks of his angst. He has had enough, quits his job as marshal, and tries to lead a normal life. Let's listen to Bloody Hands.
9: Oh, hello, Chester. Oh, come on in, dog. Ah, where's Matt? He ain't here. He left the note, but he didn't say exactly where he was at. It seems somebody told him where he could find Jack Brand. Mr. Dillon says Brand's got three of his gang with him. You mean Matt's gone out alone after four men? Well, if I knew where he was, I'd go help him, Doc. That last hold-up the gang pulled, they say four men got shot down. Yes, sir. Oh. Yes, sir. Oh, that's so. That's him! That's Mr. Dillon, Doc. Uh, where is he? Well, there he is, sitting on that wagon. Oh, yes. Well, who's that with him? Some fella give him a ride, I guess. Hello, Mr. Dillon.
3: Hello, Chester. Doc.
9: Hey, you lose your horse, Matt?
3: We left our horses out at Bowers Ranch and borrowed this wagon. One of his riders will bring him in tomorrow.
9: Who's this with you, Mr. Dillon?
3: You've seen his picture, Chester.
9: Oh, my goodness. He's Jack Brand.
3: Let's get on, Brandon. You first. For sure.
9: How come you let him drive the wagon, Mr. Dillon?
3: To keep his hands full, Chester. Here, take my shotgun and lock him up.
2: Yes, sir.
9: Where's the others? I thought he had three men with him.
2: Well, tell him, Marshal. Tell him where they are. They're in the wagon, Chester.
3: Out
2: of that canvas. Mm -hmm. Well, are they all dead, Matt? Uh, All three of them? They're all dead, Doc. The bloodiest marshal I ever saw. It's just a wagon load of meat to him. That's
3: enough, Brandon. It ain't
2: hardly enough. I never seen such killing. Oh, what happened, Mr. Dillon? It doesn't matter. They put up a fight and I had to take him. Well, I'll tell him what happened. Your law man here hid himself in the grass and just waited for us to come out of that cabin. And then he yelled, so naturally we headed for cover. Who wouldn't? He just laid there and he cut loose of the shotgun. Tore up two of the boys that way. Then he stood up and he cut down Hank Smith with a six-shooter. How come you got out of it, brand I jumped back in the cabin, and I give up. We weren't putting up a fight. He spooked us yelling like that. Make any man jump. Oh, I suppose you're trying to say that you wouldn't have shot We tried to shoot him. Who wouldn't? Any man's got a right to defend himself. Oh, well, I never heard of him resisting arrest. Called self-defense. I never heard of no marshal shooting down everybody on the landscape. Lock him up, Chester. Get going, Bran. Well, he actually think he was killing hogs, not men. Shut up and keep out marshal
9: marshal. See, how come you brought the bodies back, man? Why didn't you just bury them out there?
3: I wanted more witnesses than me to identify him, Doc. Might save trouble when Bran goes to trial. Well, you
9: see, you were mighty lucky taking four outlaws that way, man. Yeah. yeah and you killed three out of... Oh, see, wait till people around here hear about this.
3: Brand's right, Doc. It's a lot of killing. An awful lot.
9: Oh, no, you don't. You don't get to thinking about it too much now,
3: man. Eh? It's your job.
9: You did it. So it's over.
3: It's over? Wait till tomorrow or the next day. There'll be somebody else. There's always another man to kill.
9: Oh, no, that's not the way to look at it, man. I've never heard of you shooting anybody you didn't have to.
3: No, I never did. But sometimes that doesn't help much. Say, you look tired, man. Well, I haven't slept since I rode out of here two days ago.
9: Well, now, you get some
3: rest, and you'll feel better. Sure.
9: Brand snug in jail, Mr. Dillon. He don't like it much, but I told him not to try kicking his way out, that I'd be sleeping in the
3: office. We'll both be sleeping in the office, Chester. I'm too tired to walk to my room. Uh, take care of this wagon. And what's in it, will you? Mm-hmm. You and Doc can identify those men. We'll write it out on paper in the morning.
9: All right, sir. Uh, I'll be coming to bed about midnight, but
3: I'll be real quiet. Nothing could wake me, Chester. Not tonight.
6: You're listening to Reimagined Radio and our tribute to William Conrad. We will continue with Bloody Hands, an episode from Gunsmoke in just a moment. Excellent radio series like The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet showcase skilled use of spoken voice, sounds, music, and imagination. Upcoming episodes of Reimagined Radio will follow this lead. We plan a Columbia workshop tribute, a look at four radio stories that may have inspired the War of the Worlds, and more. Please join us as we share these interesting stories. I'm John Barber, producer and host of Reimagined Radio. While I have your attention, let me remind you that Reimagined Radio is heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. If you would like to support programs like Reimagined Radio, please contact your community radio station and learn how to donate. Every donation helps your station provide interesting and thought-provoking programs like Reimagined Radio. If you already support community radio through your generosity, thank you. If not, please consider supporting this and other community radio stations. Your support is valuable and much appreciated. You're listening to Bloody Hands, an episode of Gunsmoke and part of this reimagined radio tribute to William Conrad. The story is set in the 1870s, in Dodge City, Kansas Territory, with its reputation as a lawless town where the fastest gun ruled during the settlement of the American West. Conrad, as Marshal Matt Dillon, has just returned from capturing a wanted outlaw. Bone-tired, he wants nothing more than to sleep through the night. But trouble never sleeps in Dodge City. Let's continue the story.
9: Gosh, Doc. You sure I shouldn't wake him up and tell him? It can wait until morning, Chester. Matt's too tired to do anything about it tonight anyway. Mm, I guess you're right. Of course I am. Uh, okay. Good night, Chester. Good night, Doc.
3: Mr. Dillon, No, I've spilled enough blood. I don't want to kill you. No,
9: Mr. Dillon, wait. No! It it, isn't me, Mr. Dillon. It's Chester. There ain't nobody here. What? You you was asleep. You've been dreaming.
3: Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll light the lamp. No, 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 no. It's all right, Chester.
9: My gracious, I I, I come in and I heard you talking and I, I thought somebody was here. That moonlight ain't too bright. I couldn't see good at first. Sure. My, I had to yell at you a couple of times before you woke up. You was dreaming you was in a fight, I guess.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I was dreaming.
9: Uh, Nightmares like that, they're they're just terrible, ain't they?
3: There's a bottle in the desk drawer over there. Chester, get it for me, would you? Yes, sir, I know where it is.
9: have nightmares sometimes when I was a boy, but I don't get them much no more. Here it is, Mr. Dillon. Good step drink will do you good.
3: Thanks, uh, Thanks, sister. is it a little past midnight jack brand awake
9: no he'd be bellerin if he was but mr dillon now that you're awake there's something i ought to tell you oh what well me and doc was having a drink over at the alfragans and a fella come in there and started talking real loud
3: talking about what
9: well sir mostly about how he's gonna tree dodge and how he's gonna tell you too oh He says he's a friend of Jack Brand's, and he's heard about how you caught him and all.
3: What's his name? Stanger. Joe Stanger. Yeah, I know him. Well, do you think he'll cause trouble? Probably. And I'm not going to worry about him tonight.
9: See, that's what me and Doc figured. He won't try nothing
3: tonight. All the same, keep your gun handy, Chester. Now let's try to get some sleep. Chester, it's hardly
9: dawn. I'd like to throw a bucket of water on him...
2: Stop it,
3: Brand. What? You're not hurt. I hit the gun. I got the keys, Mr. Dillon. I'll
9: get his gun out of
3: there. All right, go ahead. Stand back, Brand.
2: You like to bust my hand. You're lucky. Lucky didn't kill me, I suppose, just like you kill everybody. Shut up got it, Mr. Dillon. It's no good anyway. Not
3: now. Where'd you get that gun, Brent?
2: I made it, Marshal. Don't be smart. Oh. Wait a
3: minute. Joe Stanger brought it to you. He tossed it to you right through those bars on the window. Didn't I
2: didn't he? know Stanger was in town.
3: Didn't you? Chester, get some boards and nail them over the window so nothing can get through it.
2: I'll fix it, Mr. Dillon. Oh, wait a minute, Marshal. That's the only window in here. You can't board it up.
3: You'll get enough air.
2: No, but it'll be dark. I don't like it dark.
3: Don't you? When you get it fixed, we'll go to breakfast, Chester.
9: It won't take long, Mr. Dillon. some time since I've been out on the plaza this early in the morning, Mr. Dillon.
3: Oh, weren't you up gambling all night last Saturday, Chester? Oh, well, that's different. Oh, how?
9: Well, I've been asleep all night. This time, things look different when you had a good night's sleep.
3: Yeah, they sure do.
9: You didn't have no more nightmares last night, did you?
3: No, but I didn't sleep well.
9: Yeah, you, you ought to take some time off. Go out buffalo hunting or
3: something. Yeah, maybe I ought to take a lot of time off. Wait a minute, Chester. What? That's Joe Stanger coming there. Same by
9: God, it is. What's he doing up so early?
3: Maybe he wants to find out why Jack Brand hasn't shot his way out of jail yet.
9: Well, he won't throw him no more guns, not the way I got that place boarded up now.
3: Get out of the way, Chester. Yes, sir.
10: Stinger. Train leaves for Abilene in
3: about an hour. Going to Abilene? I'll be back next week. Jack Brand will still be in jail. I heard you caught him.
10: Good friend of yours, isn't he? Sure. But I ain't part of his gang. I never was. Yeah, I know. Of course, there ain't much gang left now. No. You're a pretty rough man, Marshal. And I have to be. Don't it ever bother you, killing
3: people the way you do? Stanger, I shot a gun out of Jack Brand's hand this morning. You come by the office later, and I'll give it back to you.
10: Now, what would I want of a smashed-up
3: six-shooter? It's yours, isn't it? I'm wearing mine. I ought to throw you in jail, too. What for? To get you out of sight, if nothing else.
10: I wouldn't go to jail, Marshal. Not without a fight, I wouldn't. I ain't afraid of you. You want to try it? Go ahead. Go ahead, draw. No. What's the matter, Marshal? I thought you liked killing men. What's holding you back? You're going to have to fight me sooner or later. Get out of here, Stenger. Go get on your train. (laughs) Wait till I tell everybody about Matt Dillon. How he's lost his nerve. Get out, I said. Well, I don't want to shoot down a man that won't draw. Not today, anyway. But I'll be back, Marshal. Next week.
9: Why didn't you shoot him, Mr. Dillon? He's nothing but a big bluff.
3: Just so you go on to breakfast, I'm going back to the office.
9: What? Why, you told me... You heard me! Well, yes, sir. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Mr.
3: Thanks, Chester.
9: I'll put it right here. What you doing, writing a letter?
3: It's a telegram. Here, Chester, take us down to the depot, will you? Sure. I want it to go out right away.
9: U.S. War Department. What are you telegraphing Washington about?
3: That's my resignation, Chester.
9: What?
3: I'm quitting right now.
9: Why, you can't do that. I've done it. Oh, I don't believe it. You're funny. A man man.
3: can quit a job, Chester. I've quit jobs before. Well, I know, but this is different. What's different about it? The government doesn't own me. But think
9: what'll happen if you ain't marshal
3: here. There are other men can be marshal. Mr. Dillon. What?
9: You ain't doing this because
3: of, well, what Joe Stanger said. That I've lost my nerve... No, he's wrong about that. And he's wrong about my liking to kill men, too.
9: You've never killed nobody unless you had to. And now I don't
3: have to. I'm through, Chester. I knew I was through when I didn't draw on Stanger this morning. I've killed my last man. I just don't know what to say, Mr. Dean. I've hated this job since the day I took it. I never did have a taste for killing, and now they can find somebody who has... He'll make a better marshal than I ever was. That ain't true. Go send the telegram, Chester. I'll be at Delmonico's having breakfast. And with a good appetite for a change. After breakfast, I went to my room and got some of the sleep I'd missed the night before. And I slept good. It was as though what was past was past. And none of it bothered me now. I didn't have to face it happening over and over again. And when I woke up, I felt better than I had in years. I even felt a little cleaner somehow. There wasn't going to be any more blood on my hands. Washington, as usual, was pretty slow answering my telegram. A week later, I still hadn't had an answer. But I didn't care, I'd quit. And that was that. I even began to enjoy myself for a change. Like the day I finally took Kitty fishing.
1: Matt? Hey, Matt. Look, I got
3: another one. Uh, Well, throw him back, Kitty. We got more than we can carry now. I
1: will not throw him back. I will steal you.
3: (laughs) Come on over here in the shade. You've done enough fishing.
1: Okay. Look at him, Matt. Isn't he a beauty?
3: Yeah. He's bigger than any I caught. Why don't you throw him in the sack and then sit down here, huh?
1: Say, you're right. I didn't know we'd caught that many. Yeah.
3: Maybe we'll have a fish fry tonight, huh? Oh,
1: well, we can feed half a Dodge with all those. <laughs>
3: well, I doubt it. You ever see Chester go through a mess full of fish?
1: <laughs> the last time he starved himself a couple of days in advance. Maybe we can kind of sneak up on him tonight.
3: Ah, uh, no. He knows we're out here.
1: Maybe you ought to go into the business, Matt.
3: Oh? No? What business?
1: Fishing. You could do it for a living.
3: <laughs> well, I am going to have to find something to do for a living, I guess.
1: Well, it won't hurt you to loaf for a while, Matt.
3: Yeah. <sighs> I'm enjoying it.
1: You know something, Matt?
7: What?
1: What? I think this is the first time I've ever seen you that you weren't wearing a gun.
3: It is. And I'm enjoying that, too.
1: Someday, maybe nobody will wear guns.
3: Yeah, maybe. You know something, I'm sleepy.
1: (laughs) You're lazy. So lazy, you're probably going to starve to death before you find a new job. I
3: don't care.
1: Matt, look, somebody's coming on horseback. No? Uh-huh.
3: Hi. Hey. Well, that's Chester.
1: Oh, he's as lazy as you are. Imagine taking a horse to come this far. Oh, no,
3: Chester hates walking. Besides, he looks like he's in a hurry.
1: Uh, maybe he couldn't wait for that fish fry. Mr.
9: Dillon. Hello, Miss Kitty. Look
1: in that sack, Chester. We got about 30 catfish already.
9: Well, that's fine, Miss Kitty, but... Mr. Dillon, Joe Stanger's in
3: town. Oh? Well, no, it doesn't matter to me, Chester. But you don't understand. Understand what?
9: What I come to tell you. Stanger's at the Alfaganza. A while ago, he had
3: words with one of the
9: girls there, and she slapped him, and he pulled out his gun, and he killed her. What?
1: Who was the girl, Chester?
9: Kate Hawkins. Oh, no. That's who it was, Miss Kitty. And then the bartender tried to stop him, and Stanger shot him, too. And I hear he's gonna die. I grabbed a horse off the hitch rail and come right down to tell you you've got to stop him, Mr. Don.
3: I'm not marshal anymore here, Chester. I quit. No, that don't matter. It does to me.
9: You mean you're going to let Joe Stanger walk around Dodge and shoot everybody that gets in his way, including women? I'm throw killing.
3: I told you that.
9: Who's going to stop him, then? You're the only man around here that'll go up against him, and you know it.
3: That may be true. But I'm still not going to do it.
9: Wait. Mr. Dillon wait a minute I, I've been thinking a lot about all this lately and there's something you've been overlooking oh men like Stanger and Brand, they've got to be stopped I'd do it if I could but I can't I ain't good enough most men ain't but you are it's kind of too bad for you that you are but that's the way it is And there's nothing you can do about it. Not now. It's too late. It's way too late.
3: Give me your gun, Chester. Yes, sir. Want my holster? I'll carry it in my belt. Oh, Kitty. Chester will help you carry the fish back.
1: Sure, Matt. Sure.
6: Just listen to Bloody Hands, an episode of Gunsmoke starring William Conrad. This is reimagined radio with a tribute to Conrad and his great radio voice. In addition to Bloody Hands, we also listen to The Abominable Snowman, an episode from Escape. Both provide solid, high-quality storytelling. Both illustrate the power of spoken voice to carry and maintain compelling stories, In this case, it was the million dollar voice of William Conrad, who not only defined these two radio drama series, but is noted for many other fine character roles throughout his career in radio. Curation and script adaptations for this episode by John Barber. Music composition, sound design, and post-production by Mark Rose of Fuse. Our presence on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is provided by Regina Carroll Social Media Management. Graphic design by Holly Slocum Design. Our announcer is Jack Armstrong. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you for listening.
0: This has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Our radio broadcasts are heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. For on-demand streaming, point your browsers to our website, Reimagined Radio. That's all one word, no punctuation, dot net. While you're there, subscribe to our snappy email program guide. Thank you so much for listening. And please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio, where we'll continue our exploration of radio storytelling. You're tuned into Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is all things horror on Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day or find Tuesday Terrors in your favorite podcast players. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.